Today on the Data Nuts podcast, we land on planet Mentorship to drive around in our exploratory rovers. Why? Well, mentoring came up on Twitter a while back, and some of you are for it. You invest in your coworkers and your organization by sharing with others what you know. Now, some of you are against mentoring, making the argument that you don't have the time and aren't getting paid to teach other people. Hmm. And then the Twitterverse connected us to Don Jones, who wrote a book called Be the Master. And it seems like a great excuse to fire up the microphone on our rovers and explore planet mentorship in more detail. At PacketPushers.net, you can find this in all of our Datanaut shows about infrastructure engineering or search for Datanauts spelled like astronauts in your favorite podcatcher. You can follow us at Datanauts underscore show. I'm Ethan Banks at EC Banks, and with me is the mountain climbing, PowerShell riding, globally flying Chris Wall at Chris Wall, hashtag piece of the wall. Oh, Chris, you're back, buddy. You're like, you're like I living am. out of boxes, but you're, but you're, you were gone and you're back. Yep. I'm now in Austin. Uh, I'm like sort of back. I still have to unpack some stuff, but yeah, we can hear a little boom in your voice because like, like you're sitting in the middle of an empty room. Yeah. It's <laughs> very, it's very cavernous in here. Yeah. So that'll hopefully change in the next three or four weeks. All right. Don Jones joins us today. And Don, would you uh, tell us a little bit about who you are and then mention why you wrote this book, Be the Master? I am a technical guy from, from way, way back. I have been writing technical books for about 20 years now, speaking at conferences, all that, big in the PowerShell space. I'd written a blog post at donjones.com about this entitled Be the Master or Go Away. And it was kind of this whole, you know, I, I love answering people straight and to see people and then never to be seen again. It's like, no, you know, if somebody helps you, you really should turn around and help someone else. And it got a lot of hits. A lot of people read it, a lot of comments, which was, was kind of the best thing for me. And I realized that I could have done a much better job of being actionable and really expanding on the, the whys and the wherefores and the hows. And that kind of led to the book, Be the Master. Okay. Now, I've been using the term mentor, but as we were talking before the show, you, you said you don't actually like the word mentor or mentoring as such. The word master you chose purposefully. Can you explain that? Yeah, there's two reasons. Um, one is that there, the whole master-apprentice relationship that developed in the, the medieval times had a real specific benefit. And, and I think that's one of the things I wanted to capitalize on was there was a reason society created that structure. But the other reason is that as soon as you say mentor, I think most people, especially technical people, our brains go straight to, I'm helping someone at work learn something technical that I know. And I kind of wanted people to think broader because there's so many things that stop us from doing that at work. But most of us could have a much larger apprentice audience if we kind of looked outside of that box. And this, for me, was really not just about helping people at work. It was about giving back Think about all the different things people have helped you learn and do in your entire life. Giving back in those other areas can be just as important and gratifying and useful as teaching someone something technical at work. Ah, well, of course, right. That, and that is exactly what popped into my head was teaching someone something at work, because that's typically been a context where I've had the opportunity to work with someone, maybe a, a junior engineer, and I was in a technical lead position, yep. and they needed to know whatever it was, sit and work with them and those things. But I see we're going to have a more uh, expansive conversation than just that context. As I was doing some reading in your book, I didn't get through all of it, but I read a, a good portion of it. In preparation for the show, you seem to think that mentoring, or I guess maybe apprenticeship is a better term here, is more or less maintaining balance in the universe. Can you explain that idea? 
Yeah. So the, the, the short answer is the whole reason back in the day, you know, if, if you wanted to be a blacksmith when you grew up and you were a little 12 year old kid and your parents thought, yeah, you know, there's a blacksmith in town and he doesn't have an apprentice. So they would haul you over to his shop and they would negotiate. You would actually pay a fee just like you might pay to a college today for that master to show you what he knew. And the reason that the societies then kind of built that that give and take was because they were terrified that these these masters, the, the blacksmiths, the carpenters, the, the stonemasons, everybody else, that they would die. And that the village or the town or whatever would lose that critical, critical trade that they all needed to survive. And so to protect themselves, they created this system where these guys felt comfortable handing off their valuable intellectual property to some young kid because they would get cheap labor out of that kid. And it, it was this whole delicate balance. And the idea was simply to keep this thing alive. And you know, you start to take IT as a great example. A lot of us are, are middle-aged guys, like the operation side of IT doesn't really do a lot to bring new people in. You, you'll get people, you know, kids should learn to code, kids wanna write apps for their phones and that's great, but how are those apps gonna talk to each other and what are they gonna run on? And we, in particular, don't do a lot to support our trade and to protect our craft. And if you look around, there's a lot of other industries that do the same thing. And then there's just a lot of that basic life skill type stuff that also doesn't get brought along. Like, I don't think kids get taught how to balance a checking account anymore. And that seems like a pretty crucial thing. And so taking those things on and really understanding that, yeah, you might be handing off something valuable and yeah, you're going to have to burn some time to do it but it's there to kind of protect the whole system. And someone did it for you at some point. So you kind of have a debt to repay by paying it on to the next generation. How would you contrast that to kind of formal education, like going to a training class or getting you know, an undergraduate degree, something like that versus what you're describing here? Are, are the complementary? Is one better than the other? Kind of tease that apart a bit. You know, for certain trades, take doctors. I think formal education is fantastic. Like I want my doctor to have gone to all the <laughs> Yeah, I don't want him learning on the table. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, what's weird though, is that every time we talk about a trade, like if you were to walk on the street and say, look, name, uh, name two jobs that you definitely think should be college educated. A lot of people will come up with doctor and lawyer and that's great. They require a lot of knowledge. Yet both of those trades have a firm defined apprenticeship requirement on top of that formal education. Whereas so many of these other college trades, topics that they teach, whether it's computer science or, or whatever else, it's go get your four-year degree, maybe get a master's degree, and then you kick out and you're ready to go. And we all know that's not true, right? The college kids who come right out of college, they're all fresh and eager and everything else. They get an entry-level job because they still don't have their time in grade. So even when those things are complementary, that, that apprenticeship, learning under someone else on the job, still kind of has to happen. And I think there's a ton of actual trades and I really regard IT as a trade. I don't know if formal education really adds a lot to what an apprenticeship could actually bring to people. Got it. Yeah, that's, a, that's interesting. I mean, well, mm, I mean, I have a computer science degree, so I learned, <laughs> I, that's just an interesting <laughs> point you make, Don. I'm really thinking about that because the joke about my computer science degree is if I was going to have a job as a developer, that degree would have much better prepared me for what I actually ended up doing, which was much more infrastructure related. And and I, I ended yeah. up going through effectively trade school in the form of vendor certifications to learn how to do my craft. Yep. Just a, a quick story. I, I definitely remember after coming out of college, because I also have an undergrad in network engineering, 
I remember learning a lot that I had an epiphany. I was like, oh, this is so cool. I'm learning all this cool stuff. And then I finally found peers because I was a solo sysadmin. And they're like, oh, yeah, I learned that forever ago. That's not a big deal. That's not new. All these epiphanies that I thought I had. I felt like if I could have just spent a week with someone who was a master, I would have totally cleared about hmm. two years worth of logjam of just frustrated learning. So it, it does resonate with me, even though I have an undergrad as well. Yeah, and we do a couple of things wrong there. One is I would agree that software development is a lot more like a science than a trade, right? There's a lot of, if you think about you know data science and, and patterns and practices, and those are things that really lend themselves more to being like medical school in a lot of ways. They're, they're hard scientific things. You would think IT operations would be the same way, but it's definitely not. It's a lot more like plumbing because a lot of times we just have to wire stuff together and hope for the best. And because we don't have this like built in notion of helping each other and apprenticing, we wind up reinventing the wheel a lot. Like it's like every single one of us has to rediscover all of these things. (laughs) And it's a, it's a huge way. It's not only a waste of time. It's actually legitimately dangerous. Like it, it, it would be like taking a carpenter who had never done carpentry before giving him a set of blueprints that a college trained architect had created and then hoping for the best. He's going to have to rediscover how to toenail things properly. The house is probably going to fall down. We don't do much to protect our trade. But if you think how critical our trade is to modern society, like nothing would work if the computers couldn't talk to each other. And yet we really rely on this kind of, I, like, God bless them, but I don't think we should be relying on Microsoft and Cisco certifications to make sure the world doesn't <laughs> fall apart, right? <laughs> Oh boy, you are you, you said so much there. Okay, there are some people though, and I ran into some of these folks on Twitter who cross their arms and say, "No, I'm not going to spend my time teaching anybody other stuff when I'm at work because I don't have time for that. It's not what I'm getting paid for." And and I guess you've already said that there's a broader scope to this than just teaching people things at work. But but how do you get inside the head of that person who who doesn't want to teach some, anyone anything else and convince them that they they should be? Two sides to it. One is you really do need to start with the company. Like if if you're going to be a a tier three, tier four guy or gal, you should be compensated with the idea that part of your job is to bring other people along. And there's a ton, ton, a ton of benefit to the business, right? Like all these businesses have got so much institutional knowledge locked up in people's heads that when you bring someone in new, they're essentially useless for three to six months until they figure out all the weirdness of that particular company. Whereas if you were bringing in people young, they would know all that right from the get-go and everything that makes that company special or competitive or whatever else would be baked right into everyone's DNA. And when you bring people along in the beginning from like that, they're more likely to stay with you, which means hiring high-end people, which is very hard, doesn't become a thing. You're making your own high-end people. So that's the first piece. It's got to be part of the business and there's a lot of reasons to make it part. I would rather live in a world and in an industry where I had helped a lot of people than in a world where I hadn't, because someday I'm going to need a new job. I'm going to need some help. And all that community of people that are out there that remember me helping them, they're going to do me a solid when I need one. I mean, that's just basic human networking. Yeah, very straightforward in, in that sense. Kind of the pay it forward mentality too. When you're a decent human being, that tends to serve you well overall. And if everyone in society is like that, the world's a much nicer place to live. Yeah, Ethan. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh wait. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> no, no. Actually, as you say that, I've also read most of the book because honestly, it's it's kind of a page turner. It tends to suck you in. So kudos to Don on on writing it. But 
there was one quote that I picked out specifically early on in the book, I think like page 10, quote, to not become the master is to be a failure as an apprentice. To not become a teacher is to be selfish and unworthy of being taught. And I don't know, for a long time, people would ask me, how do you learn all this cool stuff? I said, I teach it because A, you're going to have that fear of getting things wrong. So you're going to go pretty deep into learning something. But also B, once you approach a topic from the perspective of being a teacher, you look at it a completely different way and you start to get your students kind of challenge you in a good way. But also, I think just the perspective that you have on a topic changes a little bit. And so I I agree, although, Don, kind of my question here is there's a lot of bullish statements like that in this book. What gives you the confidence to say such things with such authority? Uh, It's happened to me. I didn't go to college. Uh, (laughs) I I was an apprentice and I was an aircraft mechanic, which is a a trade that still does apprenticeships very formally. Uh, So I have a Department of Labor recognized apprenticeship certificate buried in a box somewhere. And so I had always come along with this idea of formal classroom training as a small supplement to hands-on learning. Everything I learned in IT, I mean, my first IT job was operating an AS400 until I got the job. Like after I had the job, I didn't even know what an AS400 was or what it looked like, but I was taught (laughs) on the job. Literally everything I've ever learned about IT, someone else has has taken the time to teach me or I've, I've learned it on my own, supplemented with other people helping me learn to understand it. It's been demonstrably good for my career. Like anything that I have decided defines a successful life for me, I have been able to get to or or I can see my path to it. And it's been largely by other people helping me. And then I turn around and I, I try to pay that back. I try to help other people. I'll give you a really good anecdote. Uh, I had a fellow write in and I'll, I'll, I'll kind of concise it a bit because uh, it'll make it a little bit more applicable. A technical person. But he, he read the original blog post and, and said, you know what, I want to do that. But rather than teaching people at work, right, expanded his box a little bit, expanded his audience for an apprentice and went out and taught uh, some, some parents at his school how to build what I call a bug out kit, right? Your, your bag that you grab when things go wrong or there's a fire or whatever, and it's got your, your medicines and everything else. And he helped them build a checklist for this type of stuff. Well, it was so well received and, and wound up actually helping a parent in that school that they now have a panel of parents that have been going around and doing the same thing. And it's just such a perfect example of, you know, if you just take something that might be locked up in your head and, and put it out there and help other people in some small way, how so many of them will, yeah, you know what, that's a great idea. They can pick it up and it expands and it goes from there. It's just demonstrably good. It's really hard to find someone, even getting back to IT, it's hard to find someone who can say, yeah, nobody ever really helped me. I learned all of this on my own from books or from classes. So I don't see any reason why I would help someone else. So the big takeaway for me is that we're not building upon the mistakes and the successes of the previous generation of IT professionals. That's what's kind of being pitched by Don here. The result of that is that we're wasting a lot of time. We're reinventing the wheel and we're having to re-go through all those necessary kind of iterations of errors and triumphs versus kind of just building that body of knowledge and making sure that we're building upon that body of knowledge. You know, basically we have the problem of tribal knowledge, but globally, that was my thought there. What about you, Ethan? Yeah, pretty related. He made the point that IT operations is a trade. It's not a science. And I, I agree with that. There might be a whole show there, actually, but... 
I, I had a, a short example of that. Um, in my early days learning routing and routing protocols, I had a challenge in an environment with OSPF. I couldn't figure it out. We brought in a, a specialist, someone who at, uh, at that point was a CCIE. I was not. And he sat and explained to me the problem, exactly what was going on, why we were having this issue in our OSPF network. I learned more from that guy in 30 minutes than beating my head against these books I had on the shelf trying to, to sort it out. It was a trade in that sense. He was, you know, I was an apprentice for that half an hour as he shared his knowledge and wisdom with me. And I think that's the best way to think about uh, operations is that trade, not a science. And you need other people to learn from and then to share your knowledge with. All right, Don, let's bring up probably, it's probably going to be an elephant in the room for a lot of folks, the topic of, hey, I want to blog, I want to speak publicly, I want to share and be, be a master, but that darn imposter syndrome keeps holding me back. And it's really just the admission that I don't know everything and I'm terrified that someone's going to point that out or, or really just find out that I know nothing. You know, that sphere of there's so much stuff in the world, I know a fraction of 1% of that. Is your advice to kind of stay quiet until I know everything, which obviously that's not going to be the full, the full picture. How does that apply to mentoring? Kind of at what point do you decide, okay, I'm going to go in and start doing this because I'm ready. If you've made it to an adult life, like if you're, if you're past the age where you can drink and vote, you've learned something that someone else doesn't know. Imposter syndrome, I think comes from a couple of places. One, we're really afraid to put ourselves out there in the event that we look stupid. And that comes from a really I think toxic way that most modern cultures have built education. We go to school as little kids, we go to kindergarten, we go through elementary school. Your third grade teacher is not interested in your contributions to class. That teacher would pretty much be happy if you would just shut up and sing the song and write your alphabet and everything else. And we, we get through high school and maybe you had a good teacher that encouraged a lot of classroom discussion, but that's not really teaching, it's participating. It's a first step. Then you go to college where the professors are quite clear that they're the professor and they're not interested in you teaching anything. You're just going to sit there and absorb the knowledge that spews out from their minds. And we never have this formal point where anyone tells us, okay, it's okay for you to start teaching now. And so mm. we get this whole us versus them kind of thing in education. And what we forget is that there's a generation coming up behind us that's getting exactly the same treatment. And so we get into our adult lives, we're going through, we're doing whatever, we're learning a lot of stuff, but we've never been told that it's okay to start teaching, first of all. Second, we spend all of our time looking ahead, right? We look at the people that we idolize or want to be like, we look at our examples, our gurus, and if we're not them, well, then clearly we're not good enough to teach anything or help anyone else. And we keep forgetting to turn around and look behind us at that younger generation and to maybe start becoming someone that they could model their careers on. So I know you're going through a list here, Don. You mentioned you know expertise and then you know kind of this time element. There's got to be somewhere where you draw the line, though. I mean, you where okay, maybe I don't have to be the guru, but I still have to have achieved some level of of, of career success or, or something before I'm in a position where I can be where I can be an authority. Yeah. And, and most people probably already are there. I mean, even if it's as simple as, as going down to your local boys and girls club and holding a class on how to put together a, your own Wi-Fi network or, or change a tire on a car, like everybody has gotten to some point where there is something someone else doesn't know. You just need to go find that apprentice audience and you can grow that over time. But 
anybody who could look at their job right now and say, yeah, you know what, this isn't the last job I ever want to do, but it's a good job. And I'm, I'm, I'm happy I got here and it took a little bit of work to get here. That is a success point, right? It doesn't need to go any further yeah. than that before you start turning some of that around. And I think that's a key thing too. It's not like college where you are either the student or the professor. You can be master and apprentice all at the same time. You can still be learning and furthering your own career while you're helping someone else just to get started on theirs. Now that bingo right there. I, I remember um, back in 2011 or 12 or something like that, I wrote a lot of articles on my blog about NFS, the protocol with VMware. And it was large because no one had written anything. And, and I was kind of stuck with that environment. And I was pretty terrified at first. I did not want to share what I had learned because I was terrified of being made fun of and it was, it was the most stressful click of the publish button I've ever written uh, or I've ever had to do. <laughs> and I was just terrified there wasn't going to light me up. And the way I approached it was, okay, I, I made it pretty clear. I'm not the expert at this. These are my observations. I don't think anyone else has really shared these observations, so I'm going to. And I clicked the publish button. And within like a couple days, I had 50 plus comments and a lot of kudos. A few people pointed out places where I was in error or, or potentially the architecture could be better. But absolutely, I, I approached it that I'm not the absolute end-all, be-all expert on this topic, but I've learned some things by being hand-on, and I want to share that and kind of grow what's been written based on the feedback. And so I think that's absolutely right. It's not like you get to a point and you're done. It's not a train ride yeah, where you get to exactly. destination, you get off, and you're like, well, that was great. What's next? You know, it, it, the train is going in a circle. It just keeps going. So I totally resonate with that, Don. Similar kind of story, uh, Chris and Don. I, I just did a podcast. We talked about uh, a networking protocol, BFD, bidirectional forwarding detection. And I was working with an engineer who had done some automation around BFD. And we spent the top of the show talking about what BFD is and is good for. But some of the people that I know or that hang around in the Packet Pusher Slack channel, they're IETFers. These are people that, that maybe have their hand in writing protocols. And uh, one of them pops up and says, hey, I listened to that show on BFD. And uh, here's another use case for BFD that you didn't mention. And it's like, <laughs> okay, there's a blog post there. Something I didn't know that we didn't cover in that show. It's just right, like you just said, Chris, that the train keeps going. There's always something new to learn. This was some later RFC that uh, – has some years on it. I just hadn't picked up on it along the way. So something I didn't know, and now I got something to dive into and uh, and maybe cover it uh, at a later time. Yeah, and I, I think that's something that a lot of people can take away is is the whole imposter syndrome thing is I don't want to put myself out there as an expert. Okay, don't. You can still share what you know, and you can put a disclaimer right up front. You know, I don't know everything, but here's what I've run across, and here's what I'm doing, and here's what I think I found, and. I kind of want to explain it to people in this way because that's how it made sense to me. And maybe it'll make sense that way for someone else. Even if 30 other people have already explained that thing, your way of explaining it might be the way that really latches with someone else because it's all built on how, how our brains build those synaptic connections between neurons and a different pattern is going to work for a different person. And just don't put yourself out there as the end all be all expert. And most of us are perfectly fine not doing that. Turn it into a discussion. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's there's a certain attitude that comes across. If you think you know everything and you, you put yourself out there as the, the know-it-all, then that's how you come across. And well, it turns off a lot of people. But if right, if you write from a perspective of, 
hey, here's something that I did learn and I do know and I may not know everything and, and you're welcome to leave some comments about uh, other things that would expand this topic or you know share your knowledge in the comments and add to the article. I've, I've done a lot of invitations like that with success and, and Chris sounds like you've had good success that way too. Okay, here and there, but <laughs> just, my imposter syndrome flared up. I had to, I had to clear that up. But I think that begs the question though, uh, especially today around platforms, right? Because I know when I started my blog in 2009 or 2010, it was like you blog or maybe you go to a user meetup. There wasn't a lot of options for being the, the mentor, the master, you know, offering teaching. So I, I guess two questions. First, let, let's start with how do I find a platform? What are some good ways to build out you know, what I've learned and share it, you know, is it just the blogs? Is it podcasts like what we're doing? Don, what do you think works best for someone kind of starting off in this world? It's all those different things. I think blogs are an easy way for a lot of people to start because they're a short subject. I would even suggest that. So I do a lot of my book publishing on leanpub.com now, which is a very agile built writing platform. So you, you can write longer form content, but a chunk at a time. And you can mm. publish it in as those chunks come along and people can get feedback and you can go modify it and then republish it. I honestly think that, you know, for a lot of us, teaching teaching is not about originating new information, right? If I'm teaching you to balance your, your bank account, that's that's a science that's already been figured out. I'm not the, I'm not creating that information. I'm just trying to repackage it in a way that makes sense to you. Great first step for someone to start becoming a teacher. You don't need to create new information. Go grab all these disparate blogs and everything else and create a compilation. Distill all of that for me put it in a, a logical order and make a story out of it. You're not creating anything new, but you're, you're making it accessible to a different audience who maybe doesn't have the knowledge or time to go hunt it all down in all these different blog articles, right? Simply being an, a, an aggregator and a, a repackager of information is what is at the very heart of teaching. And you can start with that. You know, think about something that you had to learn that was really difficult because you had to go to this Microsoft knowledge base article and then over this Cisco manual and then figure out these four things on Stack Overflow, just distill that process down into something so that someone else doesn't have to do that process. And you can just kind of repackage it for them and then do a short book. You know, there's nothing saying you can't do a, a 5,000 word little book or a really long blog article or, or whatever medium works well for you. Uh, but that's a great way to get started without feeling like, oh, I've got to be an expert. You're really not an expert. You're just a teacher. Yeah. And I remember when I was first starting to share content, I had that worry too around, well, someone has already written about this. And my mentor at the time, uh, she said, well, how many of those people are you? And obviously the answer is no, zero. And she's like, well, then it's, it's original content. You know, it's, it's your perspective in, you know, I was working in the automotive industry at the time. Like how many people are you? A lot of people are in the automotive industry. A lot of people are dealing with challenges that are very specific to, to what you're dealing with. Don't worry about the 500 people that have written about how to set up VMware hypervisors, make it your own story and own it. And, and then it is what it is. It's original content. You're not copying it from anybody. Yeah, no one can take we, it away from you. We tend to have a problem, especially in the tech industry, although it exists elsewhere, that we don't like to read old information. I've run into this where I, I, I've literally had to do a second edition of a print book because the other edition was six years old and people will just quit <laughs> buying it. And what that results in, and I mean, you guys have seen this, what it results in is, like we drop basic education. Like I don't, I don't think anyone's really teaching people how to subnet anymore. And maybe you could argue that they don't need to know that, but that type of thing just becomes a, a basis for so many other things that stack on top of it. 
that one great way to get started is just to write something very, very entry level that might have a four year shelf life that might have been written about a hundred times, but it needs to kind of continually be unearthed and rewritten in order for it to stay in the, the consciousness of the trade. That's fair. And then kind of pivoting the question a little bit, where do you then, if I'm seeking people to mentor, to, to be a master for, where do I find these audiences at? Probably in the same place that, that you found your mentors. Uh, you know, make a presence for yourself. Go out to people who are doing podcasts like this uh, and offer to do a little interview. A lot of, a lot of folks are, are looking for that and they're looking for something that's a new voice and a, a fresh perspective on things. Put your blog out there and you, it's not going to be an instant 100,000 hit runaway success. It's going to be slow and organic. And if you stick with it, if you make it a part of your life, like not just a project you're going to do, not just the train ride that comes to an end, but if it becomes part of your life, then it will grow and it will accrete over time. Uh, you know, if you start doing that when you're 30, by the time you're 50, you're going to have a huge audience of people who have come behind you and managed to organically discover you. It's, it's that inserted, continuous, ongoing life effort that is what, what you're aiming for. And it's what makes it all worthwhile is that this becomes part of who you are and part of what you're giving to the rest of the world. I loved the point that you don't need to know everything. You just need to know something. And if you've got something you know, then you are an authority in that area and can go ahead and share your knowledge. You don't have to know all the things before you dare to write anything publicly or explain something to someone else. What was your takeaway, Chris? I was thinking about when Don was talking about sharing what you know is important, that it's not an optional thing, that it's something you need to do, and that the advice was to throw away kind of any titles behind it, similar to what you're talking about. Don't be an, don't say I'm the expert, no status symbols, I'm not you know the guru or anything. Just literally just share from your perspective, and while doing that, be utterly transparent about this is what you know, this is how you learned it, this is why you're sharing you know, just be transparent about it because then obviously if the hater is going to hate, you can say, look, I said that I'm not the expert. I don't understand the hate. And you can just never read the comments anyways, if it's on YouTube, but that just gives you a way to, to establish, this is what I'm talking about. Here's my background. And Hey, if you find something better, let me know. And I'll edit my, you know, my document or my blog post, or my book and make it better. So Don, um, Here's a scenario where maybe maybe my job, my workplace, which would be one of the common places to do some uh, being the master, to do some mentoring. What if they're not very supportive of that? If they don't see the value. It's outside my normal job description. How, how can I get the workplace on my side? Uh, two ways. One is obviously make the effort. And that's what I'll talk about in point two. But recognize that sometimes you can't change your company. And if you can't change your company, maybe you need to change your company. Like if, if this is what you want to be as part of your life and, and who you want to be and who you are is someone who does the job, but also brings other people into the job and helps them, then you need to be in a company that supports that. So you try to make your current company supportive of it. But if you can't, that's when it's time to decide if, if maybe your career is ready for a different job. And one way that you can really start to help your company get on board and understand it is to do the math. And a lot of us in IT aren't very good at that. But if you start breaking down what you make per hour and what other people make per hour, and if you can make the case that, you know, right now I'm the person at, at $50 an hour who has to go do these things. What I'd like to do is teach our, our $20 an hour people how to do that. 
And so we're going to have to invest this much of my $50 an hour time, but it's going to help them. And, and you know what? Maybe after they get really good at doing parts of my job, they're going to need to be a $25 hour dollar person, right? That's okay because we're helping bring them along. And I, as your most expensive person, become a force multiplier. I don't have to be the one to do everything because I can teach these other four people to do it. And that's, that's literally the human version of how an economy grows. It's essentially scaling myself across all of these people. And now you're not going to have to worry about me going on vacation. You're not going to have to worry about me leaving the company. I'm, I'm building this succession behind me. <laughs> and then if you're the, the, the typical tech personality that tends to be very controlling, you also have to learn to teach them and then let go a little bit. Yeah, let them fail. Like that's an important thing. So I'm, I'm, I'm doing this whole second edition of the book and, and that's what's on Lean Pub right now. And Is it it's the same it's as the first little... edition? You're just refreshing the number? I'm just kidding with you. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it, it almost is. It, uh, everybody who got the first edition on Lean Pub will automatically get the second one. So there's at oh, least some spot. Yeah. I'm doing a whole part on uh, how people learn, because if you're going to teach people, it's kind of useful to just have a little bit of, you know, pop psychology science on, on how it is they learn. And ultimately, the way we all learn is we fail. We, we have to break things. And you do have to give people the room to do that, whether it's in lab environments or, or whatever else. You've got to give them the room to make those mistakes, experience the problem, and then come to the solution because that's what will really build up a, a strong synaptic, high recall strength memory for them. And so, yeah, you, that, that's another reason I guess I, the term mentoring kind of rubs me wrong sometimes because a lot of times we just see that as, okay, I'm going to tell you the, the five tasks to follow and you're going to follow those five tasks. That's not teaching. It's training, and it's what you would do with a dolphin, right? I'm just going to teach you this routine, and you don't know why you're doing it because you're going to get a fish at the end. I, I really hate the word training, just the connotation of it. <laughs> teaching is guiding someone. Teaching is, is leading them through the failures with the solution kind of already teed up so that they can experience it in a less destructive fashion than if they had to recreate it on their own. That's funny. I, when I would work with uh, junior engineers, I, I wouldn't tell steps all the time necessarily a lot of times i just ask a lot of questions well what are we trying to get done well we're trying to connect these two points well what, what are the tools you have in your arsenal that would allow us to connect those two endpoints and I'd, I'd force them to try to think through it on their own so that hopefully when done they would own that process and information because they had to work their way through it with my guidance but they were hopefully getting there on their own and that's an excellent technique. I mean, Socrates proved that. And, and really, like if you're, if you're going at it from the cognitive science direction, what you're doing when you ask those questions is you're creating a problem. And that's what our brains are good at. Given a problem, especially one with, with sufficient import and weight, our brains kind of kick into a survival mode. Okay, you're being chased by a cheetah. That's a problem. What do you need to do? And we can very quickly come up with an answer. I need to run up a tree. And so by asking that question, you're, you're setting up the cognitive equivalent of, of a, being chased by a cheetah. That's a, that's a thing I have to experience and solve now. And my brain doesn't like to be in that unsolved position. So it's going to start reaching out and grabbing other neurons that seem to make sense in that pattern. They're, through that recall process, going to get strengthened, which is how we develop those skills. So that's an excellent technique is just to kind of lead people through it and make them answer those questions. Well, Don, diving back into a specific part of the book, towards the end-ish, there's a good quote that you put out there on, there's a lot of good and extremely valid business reasons for reviving the old apprentice-slash-master relationship in the workplace. And 
you know, you talk about institutional memory and formal training versus on the job training, that kind of jazz. Can you kind of tease that apart a bit? Because I feel like that's first by the book, because this part is great. It was one of my favorite parts of the book, but it also helps you build that case where if this, if yep. changing the company internally and making it the company you want it to be is your goal, this feels like some good ammunition to, to build that case. It is. And you can almost start with, you know, just your sub executive level, go to your, your VPs, your directors and bring in your HR people and say, Hey, you remember the last time we had to hire someone in to do such and such a job? Remember how many people we had to weed through and how many resumes we had to go through and how hard it was to find someone who had all the skills we wanted. And then when they finally did come on, you remember how long it took them before they were really fully effective. How about if we just delete all of that? We stop <laughs> doing that and we just bring in our own because the easiest thing in the world to do in, in almost any trade is to bring in someone who doesn't know anything about it. That's very straightforward. You know, maybe we can go out to a program like Tech Impact IT Works and we just get some kids who who got their A plus and their Cisco uh, IT essentials and we start there. That's our starting point. We bring them in. We have an entry level job and we work them through it so that the second edition of the book expands on that a little bit. I'll, I'll tell you the brief story. I've got a friend who works in purchasing for a, a large hotel resort, and he was having a lot of trouble hiring people. I live in Las Vegas, and it's like there's only so many people in that industry, and they just all kind of rotate from company to company to company to company. And at some point, it's like you need net new human beings coming in. And so we sat down. We were talking about it over drinks. I said, your problem is that you don't have, you don't have a firm path. I, and we talked about it. We ran through it. And what he came up with was his entry-level position is a file clerk. Anybody can do that. It's really easy. But in doing that, you start to get to exposed to the contract process and the vendors because you're actually implementing a lot of that process. And his next step is an expediter, someone who knows where all the papers are kept and now starts reading those contracts and understanding their terms and enforcing those terms and implementing those things as, as different vendors come, come through the system. And the next step is a buyer. Because now that you've been kind of enforcing the terms of that, you're familiar with them and you're ready to start negotiating those terms. And you've seen plenty of contracts. So you know what those contracts ought to look like at the end of the day. And he created this glide path all the way up to like the executive director of purchasing. And you can clearly see how you could bring in a young 20 something person without a lot of experience and they could be with that company forever. And all they would ever know is that company's way of doing it. You would never have to go hire, you know, a, a high paid person from some other place that's going to have to get an extra five beyond what they really should make just to poach them over. And you create your own ecosystem and you kind of create your own, your own little world that just takes care of itself. And it becomes much more self-sustaining. You're describing a, a, apprenticeship is the word that's come up a lot. You, that you know, the journeyman, the you know, the person that uh, spends a lifetime working through that process or the company in this context, and uh, you know, and learns things constantly as they go. And that's the expectation. They don't get planted and learned how to do this one job that maps to this job description. You're describing an ecosystem where. Yes, they maybe start out with that job description, but then they grow into other jobs and responsibilities, and they've got. Well, isn't that interesting? Now they've got a career path instead of having to fight and scrape every just to, to because there's some position that finally got open and you know and so on. Maybe they can make it into that job now. You're describing something very different. Yeah, and it's it's something that plenty of trades have, but we don't find them a lot of times in, in corporate America. You'll find them in the finance department. Most finance departments are, are pretty much organized that way, where you come in as a you know a, maybe a, a data entry clerk or something, and you work your way all the way up to, to CFO maybe in some company. 
it really is kind of taking an understanding that there is a career and you're helping someone in the career. Maybe they won't make it all the way through the career at your company, but that's okay because enough are going to make it through to satisfy your company's needs. If some of them split off halfway through and go somewhere else because the pyramid's getting a little narrow at the top, that's okay. That's a, that's a price that you're going to pay for having your ecosystem and your pipeline fully populated. You're gonna create some extra capacity and that's gonna go off elsewhere in the world. And the reason to do that is quite frankly, again, I'd rather live in a world where I've helped those people go off and do good things than in a world where I've just been entirely insular and, and worried about my own outcomes. For someone that's kind of worried about the semantics behind mentoring and other things, basically contrasting mentoring to build a distinct picture in someone's head when we contrast against the tactical you know, documentation, hopefully it's well-written, or the lunch and learns we just talked about, or just various process and procedures, what should make mentoring distinct and obvious to someone when they're either trying to be one or a master or a teacher or, or trying to identify one in the environment? You got to think not so much about teaching individual tasks, but about really helping take responsibility for someone's entire career. You need to define what your success is as a person, who you are. And you need to decide that part of who you are is someone who helps other people. And that means when you're talking to someone, it's not just here's how to accomplish this job or here's how to learn about this technology. It's let me help you understand how to communicate better. Let me help you understand how the politics in this organization works and what I've seen elsewhere. You really kind of have to, to become a, a partial parent you're helping and offer them every single thing that you possibly can to help them achieve their success. And I think you need to explicitly state that you're doing that. You need to point out, here is what I am doing. I'm going to help you. Technically, I'm going to help you with your soft skills. I'm going to try and really help you focus your career and, and help you decide what to make out of your career because I want you to someday do the same thing for someone else. That's interesting. So that we can start to start to break this model of you're not good enough uh, and really help people become a mentor at the beginning of their life, not at some indeterminate point halfway through. It sounds a bit, bit firmer, you know, almost like a, almost like a contract, you know, I, someone helped me. I'm going to pay that forward. I want you to know I'm investing in you. I want you to invest in this process. And it may be one to many, maybe one to one, but it's, it's just more than just that transactional or tactical. Here's information, memorize it, regurgitate it, repeat it's let me let me focus on your career. I think there's two parts of it. I'm going to help you focus on your career, but I need you to really double down and focus on your career too. You've got to be as invested, if not more, than I am to make sure that it's, it's equal on both sides. Yeah, yeah. And here's the end game of that. Again, back in the medieval times when, when Master Apprentice was the primary model, all those masters eventually had enough momentum behind them that they created guilds. And the guilds were the ones that ultimately controlled the intellectual property and they controlled the trade. And they're the ones who made sure that someone who carried the title of a master was indeed qualified to do so. And they're the ones that if a master died young, they would make sure his apprentice or journeyman got reassigned to someone else. And they were there to protect the craft. They were there to, to caretake that. How amazing would it be in IT or in, in any other trade if we had that again, if we weren't relying on the Microsofts and the Cisco's and the everyone else's of the world and their certifications but if our own experts just kind of started to come together with this idea of, no, we're going to curate our trade, we're going to bring the apprentices along, and we don't really care if individual companies do, we're going to mandate it. Like, do you want to bring someone new in IT? Well, we're not quite a trade union, 
But if you really want to participate in the body of knowledge we've assimilated, then you're going to do it along this type of a model so that one of our journeymen and our masters who work for you are going to help bring them along because we're here about the trade and the trade is bigger than just any one employer. It, it's kind of a far off dream, but it would be so amazing if, if we could just be self-supportive of our own careers kind of in a meta level above and beyond just today's job. Well, I guess oh. we need to go form the local Ethernet fitters, you know, 286, That's you know, right. something like that. <laughs> or something right. like, yeah. <laughs> Picking up those drop packets since 2018, you know, something like that. Don Jones, thank you very much for joining us on the Data Knots podcast today. How can people get a hold of the book? Are there URLs or things that you would recommend so that they can find you, uh, the book, et cetera? Yeah, the easy one is bethemaster.com. There's links to the book both on Amazon or at LeanPub there. Uh, there's links to hit me up if that's what you need to do. And there's uh, a growing collection of, of testimonials from other people and the occasional article just to help kind of keep you inspired. Well, that's great. Thanks again for taking the time, Don, and sharing this with us. And thank, I, I don't remember your Twitter handle, but you that connected us to Don via Twitter that made this show happen. Thank you thank for bringing you. this and the book to our attention. Really cool. And that is it for today's edition of the Data Nuts Podcast. You can reach Ethan. That would be me at EC Banks on Twitter. And I write at PacketPushers.net. Chris is at, at Chris Wall on Twitter. And his blog is wallnetwork.com. And for more of our Data Nuts shows about infrastructure engineering, nosedive down the rabbit hole. That is PacketPushers.net. You will find the Data Nuts talking about containers and conferences, certifications, PowerShell, moving to cloud, full-stack engineering, storage architecture, and so much more. And until then, may your server lights blink, your coworkers be collaborative, and your cables be cleanly managed. Cursor off my takeaway. Get your cursor oh, off my takeaway. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, that's not, sweetie. That's not allowed. <laughs>